0: Good evening, um, Thursday night, June 18th, um, no real significance to tonight, no real rhyme or reason why I decided to record another episode of Proxemics. Um, it's a funny thing because as um, irregular as this podcast seems to be, um, it's a very daily part of my life and, um, everything I read and with the recurring thoughts, um, there's always a little panel that asks, you know, is this something that, you know, could be shared? Um, so I, and I, I, really have no idea why one night over another Whatever had been read or decided to surface, is said, "Yep, that's it." And actually, the idea to share this um, came last night, but it had to wait till tonight. So uh, that opening music was from The Innocence Mission, a, a really fantastic uh, folk pop band out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I'll uh, play the whole thing at the end of the recording. Uh, its title was July, and that's that's why I decided to read this. It seems every summer around this time, mid to late June, and probably throughout the entire month of July, uh, this speech comes to mind, and it's, it's a comm- commencement address uh, by the American novelist, now deceased, David Foster Wallace Many of you probably have heard it if you, well let me let me let me step back many of you probably have not heard it unless for some reason you're really involved in academia cuz i don't think this really made the popular circuit um but um i don't know much to say about David Foster Wallace Reading. (laughs) I'm going to try to understate my appreciation for him and see if that conveys enough respect rather than trying to find some kind of half hearted eulogy to preface the speech. Anyhow, this is a transcription of the 2005 Kenyon College commencement address. It's from May 21st, 2005, and it was written and delivered by David Foster Wallace. If anybody feels like perspiring, <coughs> I advise you to go ahead because I'm sure going to. In fact, I'm gonna. Uh, pulls a handkerchief out of his pocket. Um, greetings, everyone, and congratulations to Kenyon's graduating class of 2005. There are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, "'Morning, boys. How's the water?' And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, "'What the hell is water?' This is a standard requirement of U.S. commencement speeches, the deployment of didactic little parable-ish stories. The story turns out to be one of the better, less bullshitty conventions of the genre— But if you're worried that I plan to present myself here as the wise older fish, explaining what water is to you younger fish, please don't be. I'm not the wise old fish. The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life or death importance. Or so I wish to suggest to you on this dry and lovely morning. Of course, the main requirement of speeches like this is that I'm supposed to talk about your liberal arts education's meaning to try to explain why the degree you are about to receive has actual human value instead of just a material payoff. So let's talk about the single most pervasive cliché in the commencement speech genre, which is that a liberal arts education is not so much about filling you up with knowledge as it is about, quote, teaching you how to think. If you're like me as a student, you've never liked hearing this, and you tend to feel a bit insulted by the claim that you needed anybody to teach you how to think, since the fact that you even got admitted to a college this good seems like proof that you already know how to think. But I'm going to posit to you that the liberal arts cliche turns out to be not insulting at all, because the really significant education and thinking that we're supposed to get in a place like this isn't really about the capacity to think, but rather about the choice of what to think about. If your total freedom of choice regarding what to think about seems too obvious to waste time discussing, I'd ask you to think about fish and water and to bracket for just a few minutes your skepticism about the value of the totally obvious. Here's another didactic little story. There are these two young guys sitting together in a bar in the remote Alaskan wilderness. One of the guys is religious, the other is an atheist, and the two are arguing about the existence of God with that special intensity that comes after about the fourth beer. And the atheist says, look, it's not like I don't have actual reasons for not believing in God. It's not like I haven't ever experimented with the whole God and prayer thing. Just last month, I got caught away from the camp in that terrible blizzard, and I was totally lost, and I couldn't see a thing. And it was 50 below, and so I tried it. I fell to my knees in the snow and cried out, Oh God, if there is a God, I'm lost in this blizzard, and I'm going to die if you don't help me. And now in the bar, the religious guy looks at the atheist all puzzled. Well, then you must believe now, he says. After all, here you are, alive. The atheist just rolls his eyes. No, man. All that was was a couple of Eskimos happened to come by wandering and showed me the way back to camp. It's easy to run the story through the kind of standard liberal arts analysis. The exact same experience can mean two totally different things to two different people, given those people's two different belief templates and two different ways of constructing meaning from experience. Because we prize tolerance and diversity of belief, nowhere in our liberal arts analysis do we want to claim that one guy's interpretation is true and the other guy's is false or bad. Which is fine, except we also never end up talking about just where these individual templates and beliefs come from. Meaning where they come from inside the two guys. As if a person's most basic orientation toward the world and the meaning of his experience were somehow just hardwired, like height or shoe size, or automatically absorbed from the culture, like language. As if how we construct meaning were not actually a matter of personal, intentional choice. Plus, there's a whole matter of arrogance, The non-religious guy is so totally certain in his dismissal of the possibility that the passing Eskimos had anything to do with his prayer for help. True, there are plenty of religious people who seem arrogant and certain of their own interpretations, too. They're probably even more repulsive than atheists, at least to most of us. But religious dogmatists' problem is exactly the same as the story's unbeliever. Blind certainty, a closed-mindedness that amounts to an imprisonment so total That the prisoner doesn't even know he's locked up. The point here is that I think that this is one part of what teaching me how to think is really supposed to mean. To be just a little less arrogant. To have just a little critical awareness about myself and my certainties. Because a huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. I've learned this the hard way as I predict you graduates will, too. Here's just one example of the total wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, (laughs) the realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely think about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. But it's pretty much the same for all of us. It is our default setting hardwired into our boards at birth. Think about it. There is no experience you have had that you are not the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is there in front of you or behind you to the left or right of you on your TV or your monitor and so on. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow. But your own are so immediate and urgent and real. Please don't worry that I'm getting ready to lecture you about compassion and other directedness or all the so called virtues. This is not a matter of virtue. It's a matter of my choosing to do the work of somehow altering or getting free of my natural, hardwired default setting, which is to be deeply and literally self centered and to see and interpret everything through this lens of self. People people who can adjust their natural default setting this way are often described as being well-adjusted, which I suggest to you is not an accidental term. Given the triumphant academic setting here, an obvious question is how much of this work of adjusting our default setting involves actual knowledge or intellect. This question gets very tricky. Probably the most dangerous thing about an academic education, at least in my own case, is that it enables my tendency to over-intellectualize stuff, to get lost in abstract argument inside my head, instead of simply paying attention to what is going on right in front of me, paying attention to what is going on inside me. As I'm sure you guys know by now, it is extremely difficult to stay alert and attentive instead of getting hypnotized by the constant monologue inside your own head. Maybe be happening right now. 20 years after my own graduation, I've come to understand, I've come gradually to understand that the liberal arts cliche about teaching you how to think is actually shorthand for a much deeper, more serious idea. Learning how to think really means learning how to exercise some control over how and what you think. It means being conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to, and to choose how you construct meaning from experience. Because if you cannot exercise this kind of choice in adult life, you'll be totally hosed. Think of the old cliche about, quote, the mind being an excellent servant, but a terrible master. This, like many cliches, so lame and unexciting on the surface, actually expresses a great and terrible truth it is not the least bit coincidental that adults who commit suicide with firearms almost always shoot themselves in the head. They shoot the terrible master. And the truth is that most of these suicides are actually dead long before they pull the trigger. And I submit that this is what the real, no-bullshit value of your liberal arts education is supposed to be about. How to keep from going through your comfortable, prosperous, respectable adult life dead unconscious, a slave to your head and to your natural default setting of being uniquely, completely, imperially alone, day in and day out. This may sound like hyperbole or abstract nonsense. Let's get concrete. The plain fact is that you graduating seniors do not yet have any clue what day in, day out really means. There happens to be whole large parts of adult American life that nobody talks about in commencement speeches. One such part involves boredom, routine, and petty frustration. The parents and older folks here will know all too well what I am talking about. By way of example, let's say it's an average adult day and you get up in the morning and go to your challenging white-collar college graduate job and you work hard for 8 to 10 hours, and at the end of the day, you're tired and somewhat stressed and all you want is to go home and have a good supper and maybe unwind for an hour and then hit the sack early because, of course, you have to get up the next day and do it all again but then you remember there's no food at home you haven't had time to shop this week because of your challenging job and so now after work you have to get in your car and drive to the supermarket it's the end of the work day and the traffic is apt to be very bad so getting to the store takes way longer than it should and when you finally get there the supermarket is very crowded because of course it's the time of the day when all the other people with jobs also try to squeeze in some grocery shopping and the store is hideously lit and infused with soul killing muzak or corporate pop, and it's pretty much the last place you want to be, but you can't just get in and quickly out. You have to wander all over the huge, overlit store's confusing aisles to find the stuff you want, and you have to maneuver your junky cart through all these other tired, hurried people with carts, etc., etc., cutting stuff out because this is a long ceremony, and eventually you get all your supper supplies, except now it turns out there aren't enough checkout lanes open, even though it's the the end-of-the-day rush. So the checkout line is incredibly long, which is stupid and infuriating, but you can't take your frustration out on the frantic lady working the register who is overworked at a job, whose daily tedium and meaninglessness surpasses the imagination of any of us here at a prestigious college. But anyway, you finally get to the checkout line's front and you pay for your food and you get told to have a nice day in a voice that is the absolute voice of death. Then you have to take your creepy, flimsy plastic bags of groceries in your car with the one crazy wheel that pulls maddeningly to the left, all the way out through the crowded, bumpy, literary parking lot. And then you have to drive all the way home through slow, heavy, SUV-intensive rush hour traffic, etc., etc. Everyone has done this, of course. But it hasn't yet been part of your graduate's actual life routine, day after week after month after year, but it will be. And many more dreary, annoying, seemingly meaningless routines besides. But that is not the point. The point is that petty, frustrating crap like this is exactly where the work of choosing is gonna come in. Because the traffic jams and crowded aisles and long checkout lines give me time to think. And if I don't make a conscious decision about how to think and what to pay attention to, I'm going to be pissed and miserable every time I have to shop. Because my natural default setting is the certainty that situations like this are really all about me, about my hungriness and my fatigue and my desire to just get home. And it's going to seem, for all the world, like everybody else, is just in my way. And who are all these people in my way? And look at how repulsive most of them are. And how stupid and cow-like and dead-eyed and non-human they seem in the checkout line. Or how annoying and rude it is that people are talking loudly on cell phones in the middle of the line. And look at how deeply and personally unfair this is. Or, of course, if I'm in a more socially conscious, liberal arts form of my default setting, I can spend time in the the end-of-the-day traffic being disgusted about all the huge, stupid, lane-blocking SUVs and Hummers and V12 pickup trucks burning their wasteful, selfish 40-gallon tanks of gas. And I can dwell on the fact that the patriotic, Or religious bumper stickers always seem to be on the biggest, most disgustingly selfish vehicles driven by the ugliest. Here the crowd starts to cheer and he says parenthetically, this is an example of how not to think, though, Uh, driven by the ugliest, most disgustingly selfish vehicles driven by the ugliest, most inconsiderate and aggressive drivers. And I can think about how our children's children will despise us for wasting all the future's fuel and probably screwing up the climate and how spoiled and stupid and selfish and disgusting we all are and how modern consumer society just sucks and so forth and so on. You get the idea. If I choose to think this way in a store and on the freeway, fine, lots of us do. Except thinking this way tends to be so easy and automatic That it doesn't have to be a choice it is my natural default setting it's the automatic way that i experience the boring frustrating crowded parts of adult life when i'm operating on the automatic unconscious belief that i am the center of the world and that my immediate needs and feelings are what should determine the world's priorities the thing is that of course there are totally different ways to think about these kinds of situations In this traffic, all these vehicles stopped and idling in my way. It's not impossible that some of these people in SUVs have been in horrible auto accidents in the past and now find driving so terrifying that the therapist has all but ordered them to get a huge, heavy SUV so they can feel safe enough to drive. Or that the Hummer that just cut me off is maybe being driven by a father whose little child is hurt or sick in the seat next to him and he's trying to get this kid to the hospital and he's in a bigger, more legitimate hurry than I am. It is actually I who am in his way. Or I can choose to force myself to consider the likelihood that everyone else in the supermarket's checkout line is just as bored and frustrated as I am, and that some of these people probably have harder, more tedious, and painful lives than I do. Again, please don't think that I'm giving you moral advice, or that I'm saying you're supposed to think this way, or that anyone expects you to just automatically do it. Because it's hard, it takes will and effort. And if you're like me, some days you won't be able to do it, or you just flat out won't want to. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at this fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her kid in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up three straight nights holding the hand of a husband who is dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicle department just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a horrific infuriating red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness of course none of this is likely but it's also not impossible it just depends what you want to consider if you're automatically sure that you know what reality is and you are operating on your default setting then you like me probably won't consider possibilities that aren't annoying and miserable, but if you really learn how to pay attention, then you will know that there are other options. It will actually be within your power to experience a crowded, hot, slow, consumer hell type situation is not only meaningful, but sacred, on fire with the same force that made the stars, love, fellowship, the mystical oneness of all things deep down. Not that that mystical stuff is necessarily true. The only thing that's capital T true is that you get to decide how you're going to try to see it. This, I submit, is the freedom of a real education, of learning how to be well-adjusted. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worship, as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some inviable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always find ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about all these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into, day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the so-called real world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the so-called real world of men and money and power hums merrily along in a pool of fear and anger and frustration and craving and worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom all to be lords of our tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it. But of course, there are all different kinds of freedom and the kind that is most precious, you will not hear much talk about much in the great outside world of wanting and achieving. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and being able truly to care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom. That is being educated and understanding how to think. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. I know that this stuff probably doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational the way a commencement speech is supposed to sound, What it is, as far as I can see, is the capital T truth with a whole lot of rhetorical niceties stripped away. You are, of course, free to think of it, whatever you wish, but please don't just dismiss it as some finger-wagging Dr. Laura sermon. None of this stuff is really about morality or religion or dogma or big fancy questions of life after death. The capital T truth is about life before death. It is about the real value of a real education, which has almost nothing to do with knowledge and everything to do with simple awareness. Awareness of what is so real and essential, so hidden in plain sight all around us, all the time that we have to keep reminding ourselves over and over, this is water. This is water. It is unimaginably hard to do this, to stay conscious and alive in the adult world day in and day out, which means yet another grand cliché turns out to be true. Your education really is the job of a lifetime, and it commences now. I wish you way more than luck. Okay.
1: This barren July We both wake up so dry That no more tears can leave us And all we've found Are roads we can't go down Eyes on a day We can't see I hope it comes I hope that water comes And drenches us In our clothes The world at night Has seen the greatest light Too much light to deny